the Youthscape podcast, the podcast for Christians who work with young people. Welcome to another episode of the Youthscape podcast. My name is Rachel Gardner and I'm joined by my colleague Martin Saunders. And uh, this episode, I guess it might feel a little bit different. You've read on the blurb what it's about. And we're going to be beginning to explore over the next couple of episodes, a bit of safe space to process all that's been going on, the investigation into Mike Pilavachi, who was leading Soul Survivor for many years, and the substantiated allegations against him. So to bring us up to speed. Martin, can you just sort of recap what is it that has been going on and and where are we currently now? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. So, um, well, first of all, it's important to say that not everybody will have Soul Survivor front and centre in their minds in youth ministry. You know, Soul Survivor was a huge deal for many, many years for lots of churches and hundreds of thousands of young people. But there's lots of churches for whom it wasn't Mm. really applicable or relevant. Uh So so we we just need to acknowledge that. But but I imagine if you're listening to this, you have a pretty good idea uh, of what Soul Survivor um, is and was. Soul Survivor is obviously a church in Watford um, that uh, also had uh, a huge youth festival that ran for 27 summers um, from about 1993 to 2019, I think. And uh, the um, uh, these huge charismatic youth events saw tens of thousands of young people uh, meet Jesus for the first time. Some extraordinary things happened there. Um, you, if you're listening to this, you may well, this may well be your story as well. For me, my faith really came alive as a 16-year-old at Soul Survivor. So it was an enormous influence on on youth ministry and will continue to be, of course. Um, but in April of this year, uh, 2023, some uh, concerns began to emerge, allegations began to emerge about the conduct of Soul Survivor's founder and pioneer, Mike Pilavachi. And, uh, you know, we're just going to re- we're actually going to read yeah, that's a, good idea. Um, yeah. a statement from the Church of England. So there's been a lot of um, speculation. There's been a long period where investigation was taking place. It was not really possible or appropriate to to say anything definitively. This statement from the Church of England, uh, which came out at the start of September, is much more definitive. Excuse me for reading, uh, but it says this: the internal church investigation into Mike Pilavachi uh, being conducted by the National safeguarding team and the Diocese at St Albans has now concluded having explored the safeguarding concerns fully according to House of Bishops guidance the investigation team has concluded that they are substantiated these relate to conduct in his leadership and ministry both before and after he was ordained in 2012 spanning 40 years from his time as a youth leader through to current day the overall substantiated concerns are described as an abuse of power relating to his ministry and spiritual abuse, described in guidance as a form of emotional and psychological abuse characterized by a systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context. It was concluded that he used his spiritual authority to control people and that his coercive and controlling behavior led to inappropriate relationships, the physical wrestling of youths and massaging of young male interns. 
It's hard to listen to that, isn't it? It's incredibly it's hard, to, hard to listen yeah. to it. And I think we just need to take a breath at that point. Yeah. And, and you know, I remember, Rachel, when um, uh, Soul Survivor, this is really stuck in my mind, actually, when Soul Survivor stopped in 2019 and we were really celebrating, uh, you know, the, mm. all that had gone on there. I remember you using this phrase um, that we, you know, it's wonderful to see that Mike Pilavachi didn't fall down. Yeah. He sat down. Yes, I remember that phrase. And, yeah. and I thought you're absolutely right. That's beautiful. And so it is with such heaviness that mm. we realize, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. No. And and it's really hard for us, the emotional toll that it has taken on uh, youth ministry mm -hmm. and the church, uh, you know, at large, but on youth ministry is is absolutely enormous. It is extraordinary. Yes. And we're going to spend some time thinking today, quite rightly, about uh, the victims in this. Mm -hmm. So I think there are there's a way in which we all experience this collectively, and this is impacting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. But there's also a group of people for whom this is real in a very different way yeah. um, because they were uh, the subjects of some of those um, substantiated allegations that we just talked about. Um, so we want to make sure that those people are rightfully centered and their stories are not are theirs and they're not for us mm, to sort of no. um, utilize or play with in any way. Um, but just before we sort of move into that, I just I just wondered if we could talk a little bit honestly about um, about how we first reacted to mm. this, because, um, uh, you know, I don't want us to have a clinical conversation. It's no, not really us to do that. No. And, and I think off air when we're thinking, do we include something about all of this in this season of the podcast? We we felt, yeah, we not not we have to in a kind of just grin and bear it. And we must make sure we're talking about it because everyone's talking about it. But I think because because there needs to be a space where those that care deeply about young people and they care about you know the abuses that happen in the name of religion and faith and God and just just the horror of all of that and the silencing and the um the gaslighting that there has to be these spaces where we can actually process all the complexity of it and I said to you Martin look during during the lockdowns you and I were you know we were doing two episodes a week to yeah. try and you know, to pro mainly, I think it was for you and me who needs to process what was going on. But but because of the investigation and because of all that's been going on, it's not been appropriate. But now it does feel like a time to say, what 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 does it feel like? Mm. What is the impact? And as you rightly say, it's not to say that how I'm feeling is on a par with how somebody who actually no. directly was impacted by Mike's abusive behaviour. But but actually, there's a space where we can say. It's hurt me as well. Mm. And I don't know how to move forward from this. And I'm mm. not sure what's going on. So, yeah, I remember just feeling sick, so mm. sick. And the deep sense of what, because I was, I think like you, I was finding out about it through social media. And there's always that filter of, well, is, is it? I don't know. Is it? Surely not. No, surely not. No, yeah. please. No, this is awful. And then just the sick feeling as more and more is coming through and people mm. are picking up on it. And you, the feeling is there's there's something here because mm. this is not going away. But also the sense of powerlessness. Well, what is it? What are we, talk what are we talking about mm. here? And so I, just, I think for, for many months, I've just felt complete nausea and mm. just horror, utter horror. 
um, because I was closely involved in the summer festivals. I, I wasn't running them. I wasn't part of the planning team, but I was there speaking on the platforms. I was there at Soul Sister. I was hanging out with you know, these mm, lovely mm. people that I was hanging out with in the speaker lounge. So it's that sense of closeness that felt discombobulating. Mm. What didn't I see? What, what, what mm. you know? So I think all of that, a, a little bit of self-preservation kicked mm. in. Yes, like, oh my goodness, you know, yeah. so. Well, we'll talk a bit more about our sort of personal experience uh, next time. The um, sh surely not. Uh, mm. was definitely the sort of pro pro um, prevailing emotional response, I think, the yeah. the initial reaction. And so we'll come back to this in a second, actually. Um, I remember I was on holiday, actually, and I got a, a text from a, um, a colleague just to say this has just been announced. It was actually initially, um, it sort of came to light through an announcement in a morning service at Soul Survivor Church in Watford. They read an announcement. I think um, history will remember now that that was quite a clumsily worded uh, statement and not and not a brilliant, but I can understand people were um, experiencing that very fast and traumatically, mm -hmm. but it, it wasn't a great statement. And, uh, and so I, I just, I remember hearing it and, and like you thinking this surely this there's nothing surely this is this isn't true surely this isn't um going to turn into what it what it later did um and uh, and also you know i i just became immediately aware both of my history with soul survivor mm. and and also the thought that we are as youthscape taking on one of the legacy events of soul survivors so satellites coming up in you know um in august ahead of that obviously we've had it now um you know suddenly you think oh wow, how does that impact this? So there's a lot of selfish kind of self-preservation mm. thoughts that, that that hit you. But that prevailing thought of surely not is really important uh, in the context of today's episode because it illustrates how difficult it was for people to come forward. Yes. And yes. the fact that people actually did Courage. come oh forward goodness. when they knew the con context oh and the culture goodness. would surely try to squash yeah. this because emotionally we want it not to be true. Of course we do. Of course, of course we want to preserve the, the positive memories we have of the festival and the brilliant you know, we experiences. We hate the thought that anyone must hurt. Exactly. You know, that's so we don't want any of that to be true. Oh my so the courage that these yes. victims have shown yes. by coming forward and telling their stories is enormous and uh, you know, it, it really, that's what we're going to talk mm. about um, mm. today, rightly. Mm. Can I just, can I just interject there? Because I think, I think it's worth us remembering the timescale of this, that the, the thoughts of surely not is not the same as I'm going to silence this. No. They're, 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 the two are different. They can yeah. start in the same place, but the conscious decision to say, no, this is not true. And I refuse to yes. believe it. And that is a different thing. So I think if, 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 if anyone listens to this like me, like Martin, the initial thought was no, 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 it can't be. It can't be. Yeah. And that felt like a bit for a long time. And, it, and you, if you were receiving the stuff on social media with a bit like, no, 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 that, that is not the same as, no saying actually no we're going to quash this we're going to break. so i think we need to give ourselves that permission because we are it was it is so big yes <laughs> that the horror of that is almost your your mind can't even begin to cope with you know what that was possibly being so i think it's good to remind, remind ourselves that think we want things to, we want justice to happen quickly of course we do yes. but actually the process matters yes it because does we, the truth has to come out because that is what in the end will set you know bring light onto this so i think yes. as we look back of course we might be feeling why wasn't it quicker why mm -hmm. but i think be kind to yourself if your initial reaction was surely not that's you're not yeah, or, conducive uh, uh, of i think that's right but i but to be a little bit spiky, I think the two do blur into each they other a little bit. So, can do, so yeah. people, you know, 
the, self-preservation, the self-preservation <laughs> yes. thing kicks in yeah. um you know not wanting it to be true can can turn into if you don't move on from that can yeah. turn into is there a way of us making this not true? Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and or reducing our involvement with and said I think, person. I think we did <laughs> yes. see a few examples of that. We we're did. not going to name them, yeah. but we definitely yeah. saw some people trying to minimise what were very close relationships with with a sole survivor, Mike Pilavachi. But you're, but again, you know, knowing that that was the context that you're going to speak into, you know, we know that there were lots of people at Soul Survivor who um, who would have absolutely believed. Mike Pilavachi above anything else. We know that that's true. We know that that there was a culture there that he had created. It, it, you know, the Church of England statement kind of says that, which meant the power dynamic made it almost impossible to bring challenge. So to have come forward yeah, yeah, and absolutely. have faith in in the systems and the structures that exist to get to this point is uh, monumental. So um, yeah, we just want to. Uh, I think we just want to recognise at the start mm -hmm. of this conversation how incredibly courageous. Uh, it was for people to step forward. And that's why we have got to this place where hopefully we're seeing um, some level of justice now um, emerge. So we're going to have two interviews over the next two weeks. First up, we are going to talk to uh, Justin, who is the joint CEO of the safeguarding charity 318. Now, Justin has been working in this area for many years. Uh, I think 318, formerly known as CCPAS, uh, are a highly respected organization. We've worked with them a lot in the past, uh, creating things like our safe resource and also uh, a resource that we uh, created with them during lockdown to help youth workers uh, to engage safely online. You may have seen that uh, online safeguarding uh, guide that we created. Uh, and it just felt like Justin was a really um, good and safe pair of hands to talk to uh, about a quite complicated subject uh, which is is how we listen to and support victims. Um, and this is um, obviously a, a difficult conversation. We want to say again, you know, it may be that it's not right for you to listen to this. You may not need to listen to Rachel and I talk about this. It may not be the right timing, but um, we hope this is a really helpful discussion about how we support victims uh, in situations like this. Justin, thank you so much for joining us on the Youthscape podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks, Martin. Um, we are going to talk, uh, as you know, we're going to talk a little bit about um, situations where uh, spiritual abuse and other kinds of abuse have taken place in a church context. And of course, uh, we've already been talking about the, the reason why at the moment we're particularly talking about this, and that is the events that have taken out and the substantiated allegations against Mike Pilavachi. But I think for the purposes of this conversation, we also want to talk more broadly about what it means to uh, to listen and respond well to those that have been uh, victims of abuse. So obviously I'm not a uh, abuse victim. Uh, it's it's not possible for me to speak on behalf of a survivor. It's important to say at the start of this, we're not speaking on behalf of um, survivors. But it seems to me it, it does take an incredible amount of courage to come forward and make an allegation, particularly against someone who has uh, a certain amount of power in a spiritual context. So would you, as we start, could you just talk into that a little bit and, and remind us of the importance of, of taking these things seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and thanks, Martin, for the opportunity. And, and thank you for um, 
continuing the discussion about these important issues. Um, I think just to perhaps answer that initial question, uh, what current research is telling us is that um, it takes on average 26 years for an individual to disclose their experience of abuse. Um, and we might think, well, why on earth would that be? And, and there are a whole range of reasons for that. Principally, maybe uh, it's around, firstly, the clear courage that is required in order to, to do that particularly if um, the abuse has, has happened, um, has been perpetrated by a, an esteemed leader, public profile figure, um, the sense in which um, you know, they, they may feel that they are not going to be believed, the consequences for both themselves and others of, um, of disclosing abuse, um, and, and let's be uh, frank about it. There are too many examples where consequences have been um, brought to bear upon um, victims and survivors for having spoken out yes. about their experiences. So I, I don't think that, that, that any of that, hopefully, is in question. Um, so the, the environments that we create, the cultures that we create, that empower individuals to share concerns, low-level concerns maybe initially, all the way through to, um, to full disclosures of the most horrific abuse. Um, we have to put in a lot of effort to make sure that the culture and the environment is, is right and feels sufficiently safe for individuals to, um, to go into that mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've got a lot of work to do, um, which is why... Um, you know, I think we, we have to be uh, very mindful of how difficult and challenging it is for those that have come forward and raised their voices uh, in relation to harm and abuse. So there's a whole range of things that we could potentially focus on there. But um, it's wrong, actually, that we should place victims and survivors in a situation where they feel they have to take all the responsibility yeah. and make all the moves place themselves in a yet further vulnerable situation where they may be re-traumatized in order to um, prevent further abuse, to seek justice, um, whatever it might be. So there's, there's a whole range of things that we should be aware of in that, in that scenario. That's really helpful. Um, can you kind of give us a bit of insight into what is particularly about the sort of church context, the spiritual, particularly, potentially the, the Christian context, that seems to create this opportunity for power to be misused. What is it about church that sometimes makes it synonymous with, with abuse? Okay, well, let, let, let's be clear. Uh, abuse of any kind, uh, first and foremost, is an abuse of power. Um, it is a power dynamic that is at play, that is used by one party against another, whether that's an individual to individual or whether it's a community to individual. Um, so we have to acknowledge that, that point first and foremost. Mm. In a church or a religious or a faith-based context, um, there is often an additional overlay. So we, we are, I, I guess, getting better at identifying um, physical and sexual abuse, emotional and psychological abuse, 
what we're not good at is recognizing the spiritual impact and the spiritual abuse that occurs when abuses of other kinds that we may be um, better to recognize takes place in in, in a context where um, religious practices are, are observed. So I think what we often find is that there is a, a leader, although it's not always a leader, who almost takes on semi-celebrity status, mm-hmm. um, who has created a culture and an environment around themselves where they shall not be challenged, where it is a sense of, well, look at the success of this individual to speak against them would be wrong. Um so all of those things play into a context that that um, can, if unchecked, um, make it a, an environment that is that is um, able to facilitate abuse. Mm. So you know, would, would I say that the, the church is um, any worse an environment than any other? No, I don't think I would. But I think we have to be alert to um, the, the nuances and the different elements that might be at play when we when we bring abuse mm. into uh, a, a church or faith based context. Yeah, and there are special special circumstances around making a disclosure or an allegation when you're part of a faith community. Because if it you you know you will know if you do that, you know that that if that is not taken seriously, that there could be consequences on you so again you know it's a reminder of the courage that's involved in those that have uh, come forward yeah. we've heard this um a phrase quite a lot um recently uh a victim-centered um you know the idea of taking a victim-centered approach um particularly when handling and discussing uh, and talking about how we how we respond what does that mean? can you just kind of unpack that term to us a bit like what does that mean to be victim-centered and why is that why is that important <laughs> What essentially we're saying is that um, too often we, we've seen cases where victims and survivors have not been believed, have been silenced or have been further abused by the responses that they've received by the church. Um, so putting victims and survivors first or having a, a victim or survivor centred approach means that we are um, potentially even um, countenancing the possibility that um, our understanding, our interpretation uh, is is not universal, Um, that a victim and survivor may well have had the most horrendous experience and giving them um, opportunity to to discuss that, to to bring those concerns forward Um, and making sure that before we cloud... um, the way that we might respond to that with all the the whys and wherefores, the ins and outs, the rules, the regulations, the theologies, the doctrines, we are actually prepared to to listen wholeheartedly and intently to that individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about making sure that we are um, alert to the needs of that individual, which will be quite distinct in in many cases. When you know, going going back to thinking about the courage that it requires, mm-hmm. the fact that just disclosing abuse um, may often re-traumatize a, a victim or, or survivor, bring things alive for them that that they had possibly um, buried. Um, that in itself is is a deeply challenging experience. So for us to be alert to that uh, and want to do all that we can to support them to be able to say what they need to say 
is, is part of what we're talking about when we're talking about victim sentence. It's about um, let's, let's not fall into the trap of putting the institution or the setting or the community or whatever it is ahead of this individual who, who may well be sat in front of us mm. disclosing some really challenging uh, detail about their, their past or present experience. And I guess it's really important that the, the 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 questions we're asking and the subjects that we're talking about within this are, are in some way informed and framed by the voices of people who've actually experienced this and are, are making these uh, reports. Um, I uh, you know I, I can say this much. I've spoken because um, because uh, at Youthscape I was involved in writing a couple of um, response pieces, articles to help youth leaders process. Uh, what's happened in the Mike Pilavachi situation? Um, that I've had several conversations with um, uh, abuse survivors who have uh, who are all happy that I um, say at least that I have spoken to them. And um, and what struck me was how, first of all, as you've just said, how different their experiences were. So they had different feelings, different emotions, were at different stages of grief and trauma and processing. One thing that was universal, actually, in all the conversations I've had. Um, was how difficult it was to feel like they were heard and believed. So we have this real issue um, with being believed. Why is it? Why do you think the church is so bad often at believing people who come forward and make an allegation of abuse? Look, I, I think we have a tendency as human beings to want to believe the best of people. Um, we... To, to, to a greater or lesser extent, we, we may be conflict averse in our approach to situations. So actually having to face the unthinkable, uh, address the uncomfortable, that's not a space that most people uh, would want to be in. Um, therefore, um, many uh, different mechanisms may come into play, which help the individual to, to avoid that. And, and that, I guess, in, in part is, again, what it takes to be victim or survivor-centred or focused. It's about putting the other person before ourselves. And, you know, as uncomfortable or as challenged as we might feel, let's say, if we are representative of the entity that is in part responsible. Um, yes, it's difficult for us, maybe, but how much more difficult is it for the individual who is sharing that detail mm. about their own lived experience? So I think that the church, sadly, on too many occasions, has, has demonstrated its inability to listen well, mm. um, in a sense, maybe even to, to follow um, those uh, really important and insightful words that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi when he was talking about reflecting the humility of Jesus each other's needs to prefer, mm. i.e. we put other people before ourselves and actually we do what we can to make ourselves servant or supportive to the other person. We're not great at that. Um, and I think when institutions see that they have um, significant amounts of kudos, respect, um, history at stake, there is often the propensity to, to defer to a defensive position rather than an open posture that says, we need to hear what you are saying to us. 
I was reading recently about uh, the psychological concept of default to truth, um, that when we, and, and this is often very pertinent in, in, in cases of abuse, um, when we are, and this isn't uh, my idea, this is uh, uh, written about by Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Ta Talking to Strangers. Um, when we um, uh, are faced with uh, what appears to be a lie, um, if that lie is sort of not, has no consequence, um, then we're quite discerning. We're quite good at discerning lies um, that w when the outcome doesn't really matter. But in a situation where uh, a, a truth lie um, scenario means that if if this thing is true, it causes massive kind of change and impact, um, and and means it's going to mean we have to rethink everything, and we have to uh, you know see people completely differently. Much like when um, you know someone perhaps discovers uh, possible evidence of a, of a marital affair. Uh, in those situations, our brains naturally want to believe um, that all is well and that this allegation is not true. And so that's something that's kind of yeah. in us as human beings. We don't yeah. want to, the boat to be rocked. We don't want our heroes to fall. We don't want the terrible allegation to be true. And that's that's quite that feels to me quite significant as we think about mm -hmm. how we deal with disclosures of abuse, because we have to be aware of that. We have to be self-aware of our tendency not to want to believe bad news. Yes. I, th I think that's absolutely right. And um, one thing that we're um, very much mindful of is the degree to which uh, we are all um, self-reflective. You know, so in, in the various conversations that we might have, the various um, situations we may find ourselves in, um, are we prepared to take a step back and say, um, how was that for, for all parties? How did I conduct myself? How might I have been received by the other person? Did I help them to feel safe, comfortable, as safe or as comfortable as they could be? Um, and if there was any sense in which um, my own response wasn't what it most helpfully might have been, what am I going to do about that? How am I going to regulate my own behaviour? How am I perhaps even going to confront the issues that are still within myself that represent, let's say, the dark side of who I am that cause me to behave in um, a, a less than healthy way? Um, you know, I, I think, Martin, that if, if more of us took time to, to address those elements of ourselves which uh, run the risk of being unhealthy or even harmful then hopefully we we might see less of what we have been seeing so the self-reflection the self-regulation the accepting as you say that we have a propensity to lean in a certain direction mm -hmm. um, self-preservation institutional preservation whatever it might be that is a reality and that is why putting victims and survivors first means despite regardless of all of that um there is an account here that has to be heard. Yeah, that's great. That's really good. It's really uncomfortable. It's but really we, uncomfortable. We've, we've got to go there because it's so much more uncomfortable for them. You know, you were talking about, you know, none of us want to see, um, you know, our our favourite um, leader, preacher, whoever, um, um, fall or um, however we might want to describe it. 
But how much more difficult is it for the victim or survivor who suspects that coming forward with their story might do that very thing? It is um, unthinkable to me, really, that that weight of responsibility should be placed upon the shoulders of victims and survivors when actually the responsibility is ours. Um, let me ask a, another uncomfortable question, um, which is this, you, you know, it's really important that we believe um, victims. It's really important that we believe our, our sort of operating posture is to believe people who come forward. But how, how do you strike a balance between that and the importance of uh, process and innocent until proven guilty? Like how, because there are, of course, situations, sadly, when people have made false reports and it has, it's destroyed lives. Um, and that is also, you know, a terrible miscarriage of justice. So, um, uh, you know, how do we get that balance right? That's a super important question. And firstly, let me say, you know, for, for those people who um, whose lives have been destroyed by um, what we might call false or, or malicious allegations, that is a horrendous position to be in. But let's be clear, um, statistically, less than 5% of all allegations that are brought forward are, are found to be malicious or, or false. Um, a tiny proportion in reality. And I think the the danger is that we, we might use that very, very small minority of cases to dissuade us from what is actually best practice. Mm. You know, so uh, th there is a real need for us all to be clear about our policies, our procedures and our protocols. And as much as we, we might not like them always, um, there is safety in that. The consistency that's applied that says this is something which requires uh, our exploration, requires some level of investigation, wh whether it hits statutory thresholds or not. Um, and that that's a process that we need to follow. Um, and it's applied equally to, to anyone is uh, absolutely essential because to do anything else means that actually we give space for our unconscious bias um, to, to, um, to, to play a, an unhelpful role. It brings inconsistency. It's not actually a fair and transparent process. So... Um, I think we're, we're always very keen to say, look, we, we, we must not be dissuaded from best practice because there might be a very small remote possibility that actually what this person is saying is not true. And, and I guess we have to trust our systems and our processes that that will be discovered. So if, if, yes. uh, if the allegations are untrue, the, the systems are designed to find that out as well. Yes, absolutely. Can I, I mean, this has been an incredibly helpful conversation, Justin. Um, can I just ask you one more question, which is the more practical one? You know, how do we get better at this, particularly on the front lines? Um, how do we, what is, a, what is good practice and how do we get better at responding to, listening to and, uh, and, and hearing and receiving allegations? I think, I think there's a whole number of things that, that, that we can do. Um, f firstly, perhaps we need to um, face our fear about um, having those conversations. Um, you know, the conversation that says, look, we, we, we really hope and pray 
that um, abuse is not going to happen in our setting, in our environment, in our community. But what if it did? What if it has? Um, what are we going to do about that? You know, creating a safe environment, not only for victims and survivors to come forward, but a safe environment for staff, team members, volunteers, whoever they are, to have a conversation without fear of being criticised, shot down, uh, kicked out, um, is is an important place to start. Um, and whilst we can never fully appreciate the extent of the experience of a victim or survivor, we can do a lot better to try and put ourselves in their shoes, see it from where they stand or where they sit and think to ourselves, how does this feel for them? If I'm acknowledging how uncomfortable I'm feeling, magnify it 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, and you might come close to how mm -hmm. it feels for, for the person who, who has had that experience. So um, there's a lot that we can do in terms of the environments that we create, the, the cultures. Um, are, are we prepared to listen well? not only to what's being said within our environment, but what might be being said about our environment by those who are outside. How are they seeing the way we respond to situations like this? How are they um, viewing our level of openness and transparency, at the degree to which we might learn from things that have gone wrong before? And how then might we communicate that such that we're giving people confidence that this, this, these are conversations that we want to have. This is an environment that, that we, we want to be safe and healthy. Therefore, we have to be proactive about this. Mm -hmm. So I think um, perhaps to conclude, um, all too often we have, uh, we have seen the response to, um, to harm and abuse as being the, the be all and end all. And, for where it has happened and all we have is to respond, it's deadly important that we get it right. But we mustn't forget what we can do in a preventative sense to create environments in which there is a lesser opportunity for abuse to take place, and but also for people to feel safe to even talk about the possibility in the first place. So prevention and response, they go together um, and it's a proactive ongoing process it's not a you know once and for all done piece of work um so are we are we encouraging conversations on a regular basis that that allow people to voice their concerns to bring forward what they might have learned from other places um all of that is is super super important so helpful and uh you know it's it's been a very difficult uh, season for youth ministry it's a very difficult thing for us all to process we'll talk about this more next week um, the sort of sense of collective trauma though much smaller um, that we feel uh, those of us that have been involved in Soul Survivor over the years and have and have looked up to particularly to this leader um, but I think one outcome as we're saying is that we we take this opportunity to reevaluate where we are on this as churches as youth groups how good are we uh, at listening to people, how well are we set up for someone to come forward 
and safely make allegations and be believed and heard. I think that's so helpful. Um, Justin, just before you go, um, 318 is a fantastic organization. We obviously do lots uh, in partnership together, um, but um, can you just give people a sense of, um, uh, of, of how they can connect with you and what, uh, what 318 can do for organizations that are looking, looking to get better at safeguarding? Yeah, thanks, Martin. I think that the, the best um, place to, to signpost people to is, is our website because th- there's a, a whole range of information that can be found there. So that's simply 318.org. So 318 all spelt out in letters, no numbers, 318.org. Um, you'll find a range of um, different areas of our activity there. Um, we have a helpline which is available for anybody to call about any concern, whether it is about your own lived experience or whether it is a, about a concern that, that you've seen um, or, or actually some, some good, good practice advice that you're looking for. So we, we have the helpline there and, and the number for that is 0303 003 but I just encourage people to, to reach out and make contact with us and, and, and explore what we've got and then get in touch, perhaps. Um, we, we provide a range of, of support uh, for, for those people that might um, feel able to reach out to us. So whether it's training, whether it's that helpline that I've mentioned, whether it's um, support with more detailed, uh, more complex pieces of work, um, such as the reviews uh, and the investigations, the audits that we undertake. So... The, the, the general purpose of what we do is that we are able to um, equip, encourage and empower organisations to create safer places, whatever that might look like, whatever the context. You're not starting with a blank sheet. There are people there to walk with you on your journey because we're all at different places on that journey. Our aim is to meet you where you are and do our best to assist you. 318.org. That's great. Thank you so much for your time, Justin. You've spoken so much wisdom. Um, We really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks, Martin. Thanks for having me. Next week's episode, we're going to be speaking to Reverend Dr. Kate Middleton and exploring how we as a youth ministry community process the collective trauma of knowing this has been going on and what are the things that we can take from this as we sort of move ahead in our youth ministry. But if you or anyone that you know have been affected by anything that you've heard in this episode and want to talk to someone independently, you can call Safe Spaces Helpline on 0300 303 Five six. That's 0300 303 1056. And if you would like to speak to anyone connected to this particular investigation or if you've been affected, please be assured that any concerns raised will be treated with the utmost sensitivity and support and counselling is available. And please contact, there's an email address here, safeguarding at stalbans.anglican.org. That's safeguarding at stalbans.anglican.org. Thank you. Bye.